It was in my final year of seminary at Wesley Seminary in D.C. I took a course <clears throat> titled African American Biblical Interpretation. I was the only UU in that room. Uh, I was the only white person in that room. I was saddened by that because the course would have held 20 people, and there were 14 other students there besides me. There was plenty of room for my white brothers and sisters to sit in that course and learn from the, about the biblical interpretation method that has been developed over the centuries by American black people. Dr. Shively Smith taught the course at the time she was one of 25 black women PhDs in the world. And I felt honored to sit at her knee and largely listen and learn. She taught African-American biblical interpretation, which is a completely different style from the white male pastor biblical interpretation that I grew up in in the Baptist church. And that's okay. We have a choice, right? Different strokes for different folks. But her perspective as a black woman was very different from a William Barclay or a Matthew Henry. She taught us about black folk religion and black folk theology. Black folk religion came out, it was developed in the swamps and the hollers. I'm from Western North Carolina, so it's H-O-L-L-O-W-S, hollers. Because you can holler across them from one side to the other. It came out of those places where ordinary folks, enslaved black people, would go to worship in their style and in their syncretic manner, away from the watchful eye and, and the polluted mouth of the plantation preacher. The black folk theology that developed in those swamps and hollows is the primal deliverance narrative. We're talking about the, the black folk theology that's held close to the heart of ordinary black people in the pews even today. We're not talking about necessarily the, the seminary-trained black minister, although Reverend Martin Luther King always spoke black folk theology. He preached out of the spirituals. He preached out of, out of that same religion that came out of those swamps. He preached to his people in that language. The primary deliverance narrative of black folk theology is not metaphysical salvation, it's earthly deliverance. It's not Jesus, it's Moses. Let my people go. Black folk theology is not the black church, as amorphous as that is. In black folk theology, every person has a voice. It's not the voice of the institution, it's the voice of the individual heart and hearts massed together. It is a religion that came out of ordinary people that began during, in the fields of America. It's a theology that offers an, an, an alternative view of God from the, that's alternative from the view of God that empire gives us. It's a vision of beloved community, a vision of justice, and it's a theology of resistance and reaffirmation. I might be a slave, but I'm somebody. That's what black folk theology says. It was a theology of hope. It was a, not a savior theology, but a liberation theology. The church was not here as, as 
Ibram X. Kendi told us last night in the Ware lecture, the church was not here in order to civilize people. People were already civilized. The church was here as a conduit for people to work together to make the whole world better. Today I'm here to talk to you about what, what black folk religion or black folk theology offers to white people, according to Ruby Sales. Ruby Sales is a civil rights legend. She still lives and works uh, running Spirit House. At 17, she was a member of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and she worked with Stokely Carmichael and John Lewis. She narrowly escaped death when a white Episcopal minister took a shotgun blast that was intended for her during a civil rights confrontation in Alabama in 1965. She now runs Spirit House. It's a nonprofit organization that documents murders of African Americans, addresses the prison industrial complex, and speaks to the problem of ennui, of meaninglessness among Americans who are poor, white and black Americans, who suffer from the lack of meaning, which to me is a basic theological affliction. Theology is about developing meaning for me. It's not about the afterlife. It's about, is there a meaning for me in this life? That is how Unitarian Universalism saved my life a second time. Gave me meaning in this life. Ruby Sales asks the, about the value of public theology. She is a public theologian. What's public theology? Can somebody tell me what, what in the world is that thing anyway? Public theology. What would public theology be? Any guesses? A generalized religion that public can share, right? And if theology were making meaning, beautiful, excellent. If theology is making meaning, then public theology would be taking that meaning into the public. What is, what is, what is the, what, what's good for the state? What's fair for society? What's just? In UU terms, public theology is our social justice work. So we can talk. We could talk with Ruby Sales, right? She's a public theologian. She, she says, says the, that there is a value for public theology for white America. She says, how are you going to do theology with a person who's experiencing addiction or the effects of incarceration or generational politics? Uh, poverty. And I want to be clear, she's not saying, how are you going to do the old version of theology that I always hark back to and have to correct myself on still? We're not talking about a savior theology. How are you going to do a liberation theology and help a person experiencing addiction, the effects of incarceration or generational poverty find meaning in their life? Meaning that can help them overcome those problems. She starts with the question, where does it hurt? Where does it hurt? She said, a defining moment for me happened when I was getting my locks washed, and my locker's daughter came in one morning, and she'd been hustling all night. And she said she had sores on her body, and she was in just a state. Drugs. And so something said to me, ask her, where does it hurt? And I said, Shelly. Where does it hurt, hon? And then Ruby Sales goes on to say, the question, where does it hurt, goes beyond race. 
Ruby Sales is a black woman. She says it goes beyond race. She says the question, where does it hurt, begs questions like these. And for the next couple of minutes, this will be Ruby Sales talking. She says, it, where does it hurt, begs these questions. How do, can we develop a theology or theologies in the 21st century capitalist technocracy where only a few lives matter? How do we raise people up from disposability to essentiality? What is the public, what is it that public theology can say to the white person in Massachusetts who's heroin addicted because they feel that their life has no meaning? What do you say to someone who's been told that their whole essence is whiteness and power and domination, and when that no longer exists, then they feel like they are dying? She says that's why Donald Trump is essential, because people think he's speaking to the pain that they're feeling. So what is the theologies? I don't hear anybody, she says, talking to the 45-year-old person in in Appalachia who's dying of a young age, who feels like they've been eradicated because whiteness is so much smaller than it was yesterday. I want a theology for white opiate addicts, for white poor folks, for white unemployed people. Where is the theology that redefines for them what it means to be fully human? There's a spiritual crisis in white America. It's a crisis of meaning. And she goes on, she says, we talk a lot about black theologies, but I want a liberating white theology. I want a theology that begins to deepen people's understanding about their capacity to live fully human lives and to touch the goodness that's inside of them, rather than to call on the the part of themselves that's not relational. Because there's nothing wrong with being European-American. That's not the problem. It's how you actualize that history and how you actualize that reality. It's almost like white people don't believe that other people are worthy of being redeemed. Hmm. And I don't understand that, she says. It must be more sexy to deal with black folk than it is to deal with white folk if you're a white person. So as a black person, she says, I want a theology that gives hope and meaning to people who are struggling to have meaning in a world where they are no longer as essential to whiteness as they once were. Whew. Ruby Sales. You can find her on Krista Tippett. There's a 2016 uh, uh, podcast or tape if you want to go Google it. Uh, recording. And those words come straight out of that podcast. How do you talk theology to such people? I work with such people, white people who have ennui, white people who feel like they've been passed over, white people who are poor, who have no place to lay their head, just like the carpenter had no place to lay his head, white people who are addicted, and black people in all those categories as well. You don't talk theology. You don't talk theology to people who are poor. Theology that's talked is just talk about theology, like this is right here and now, right? We're taking a time out. We're recharging. We may be doing a little learning or a little bit of thinking or a little bit of discovering something in your own hearts that's been there the whole time. 
The real theology is action when we go out from here. You don't talk theology, you do theology. There's this thing called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. A lot of you are, are, are familiar with them. It starts at the bottom where you've got your basic needs, and then there's some secondary needs at the next level, and then the third level, and it makes a pyramid. Its original formulation, Maslow, Abraham Maslow, uh, wrote out a pyramid with five levels on there, and he started out with, like, air, water, the basic necessities for life. And then the second level is shelter, and then the third level is friends and family and, and connections, and the fourth level becomes a good job and, and connection to the community, and then the fifth level you can start to think about, then you can start think about going to church or, or meaning in life, because if, if you're cut off from, the, from, from your air and your water, you're going to fight for that, and you're not in any state to meditate at that point, right? And you don't start at the top. If I'm trying to work to do theology with somebody who is poor, I'm an idiot if I try to start talking to them at the top of Maslow's hierarchy. I need to find out if they've got a place to go to sleep tonight or if they're sleeping in the park. I need to find out if they've got a job and what kind of skills they've got so we can get them the job that they want, that they love, that they would be willing to show up every morning, not the job. This, they come into Justice Jobs all the time, and they're like, what kind of jobs you got you can put me in? Like, I don't know. You tell me what you want to do, and we'll go online and find a recently posted job posting and, and, and help you get that job. And they look at me like I just came off of Mars. We also got to start with a redefined definition of faith. We believe we can solve problems, right? John, James Luther Adams, one of the great theologians of the last the great liberal, really the great liberal theologian of the 1900s, the one who didn't cut and run with Paul Tillich and Karl Barth when things got a little, seemed a little thin on the liberal side. James Luther Adams dedicated his life to staying on the liberal end and developing a liberal theology with depth and weight. And he redefined a lot of terms. One of the terms he redefined was faith. And I think he may have started with Hebrews 11.1, 1, which says, Faith is the certainty of things hoped for and the assurance of things not yet seen. Anybody ever hear that? I was like eight years old when I heard that, and I was like, what? How can I be certain about something I'm hoping for? How can I be assured, sure about something I cannot see? Sorry, I guess I was a scientist from the cradle up. James Luther Adams was, too. He was, he was raised in a in an extremely Pentecostal, fundamentalist family on the plains of western Washington. The kids were often told that uh, when they went to bed that, you know, be good because you might not wake up tomorrow morning. That's tough. He went to college and he quickly uh, switched sides, came over. He re redefined faith not as the certainty of things hoped for. He said, faith is the certainty that we have everything we need to solve all our problems together. The certainty that we have everything we need to solve all our problems together. Can I hear, hear an amen on that? We have everything we need to solve all our problems together. That's a redefined definition of faith. That's where we start out in our, in our voluntary associations, which James Luther Adams developed the, fully as an idea for the mechanism of how democracy is going to stay democracy. He said, you've got to emphasize your 
your voluntary associations. What are those? Those are your nonprofits, like I believe in me, that we're going to support later this morning. That's what he's talking about. He gave us our modern, many, many elements of our modern Unitarian Universalist theology. We need to be reading James Luther Adams, just like the Quakers are reading John Fox, if we want to know what we are. So theology doesn't have to be about a sky god anymore. It's about making meaning. The way Sales puts it, she says, what does it mean to be human? We don't get hung up on the word theology anymore. I try not to. I try to remember that the etymology, theology, the god light, that sells short our UU sources of theology, like direct experience in poetry and literature and music and world religions and science. That's all in our theology. That's all in our principles. That's, that's our common theology that we affirm, agree to affirm and promote. So our theology can be to work, not to talk, not to label, not to have nouns, but to have verbs where we work face-to-face with Howard Thurman's disinherited to facilitate the disinherited self-discovery of how to meet their own human needs, to start at whatever level of Maslow's hierarchy of needs they're at. As Barbara said to me yesterday, that puts the onus on action. Sales calls on white folks who have found, who have found meaning to work with other white people, to be allies in racial justice work, but not fixers in their relationships with black people. Not to set out to convince poor white people of our positions or that we've got the answer for them if they're starting out at a level lower than five which they, on Maslow's hierarchy, which they tend to do. It means to listen and facilitate the truth that's already inside of them. It means to witness to them that Luther Adams, James Luther Adams' definition of faith is a real thing. To witness that we do things not because necessarily you may have Jesus if you don't, if you're like me, and Jesus is the carpenter, the model, who shows, whose, whose history shows me what steps to take next, a model of sacrifice, then of, of a life of service, a model, if that's, if that's what it is to me then I can say to people, well, no, I'm not born again in the sense you're talking about. I do good things because I care you care, and I love you. And people can do, the, do good things and be good for each other, not because they believe in metaphysical gymnastics. It's not just racism. It's not just racism. Racism is a huge element of, cla- element of classism, and it's a huge tool of selling classism. Racism is used to turn the lower socioeconomic class against each other to divide and conquer. Sure, it's bigger than that, but it includes that as well. What are the requirements of doing this kind of theology? The first requirement is that it has to follow the bottom-up paradigm of Paulo Freire, who Carl has recommended from this pulpit. I slogged through that book. There's bound to be an easier translation if I find it. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, let, let me know and I'll, I'll, I'll recommend it to you. But his point, one of his many points there is foundational work. It's really, really important stuff. It's the first articulation I've found of nothing about us without us. 
He went into communities, got kicked out of three countries in South, of, uh, in South America before he came here as a political refugee, went into, into different communities doing community organizing, saying, what do you need? People who are poor are problem solvers. You know that because they're still alive, because they're surviving. Ask them what they need, and they'll tell you. And you can just facilitate that. You don't got to teach them nothing. It's just like, like our theology then can be just like black folk theology, coming out of the ordinary folk who have the problem and answering directly to their needs wherever they are now and arising from the truth that's already inside of them. It can be just like black folk theology. It's, it's a theology that offers an alternative view of God if they want it, but is willing to start with to work with whatever view they hold right now, however archaic that may sound to a prejudiced old man like me. I got to accept that. I got to love them where they are. I want to minister to other people in the language of their own theology, whatever that language is. Is that a little deceptive on my part? Sure, I've said in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost when praying with, with a fundamentalist person. I, I, I really enjoy the times I get to close a prayer, though, with in the name of all that is justice, sacrifice, and peace. It's the same thing in my book. I'm not telling a lie. Black folk theology is our model. It gives us a vision of radical acceptance, radical acceptance, accept them as they are, a beloved community extending out into the world. Our theology can be, that we do can be just like black folk theology is a theology of resistance and reaffirmation. Last month then in my office, I was able to look at a person who was really, really in his addiction and, I, and loving him into a decision to go to treatment. I said, you might be addicted today, but you can get clean. You are somebody, even if you're an addict today. Just as 200 years ago, it was, I may be a slave, but I'm somebody. And you may be an addict, but you may be somebody, and we can help you get there. And it's just like black the folk theology, it's a theology of earthly deliverance and liberation, not salvation and afterlife. And how do we do, how do we do that liberation theology? We do it when folks like people in this congregation who are members of the Alternatives to Violence Project work with people who are incarcerated and to help them discover liberation from their past lives. If that sounds exciting or sexy to you, Please see me, and I'll point you to these people. They're here this morning. We do that liberation theology when we talk to a person who's addicted to drugs, and we, and we love them into going to rehab. When we give a leg up to unemployment people with a legal record, or without a roof over their head, or without access to a computer for a job application, or without child care or transportation, that's when we do that liberal liberation theology to help them get the job that they already know they're willing to do. We do that liberation theology when we support causes that are carefully vetted by our social action committee, like the way you generously supported, and we thank you for that, my own voluntary association this past March, and others who are doing great work every month throughout the years, and how we will support the I Believe in Me in a few moments. 
We do that liberation theology when we work for the systemic change of racist and classist oppression in our communities, like the dismantling racism team does that your budget supports and that many of you take part in. And we do that liberation theology when we open and maintain personal lines of conversation with poor white Americans and poor black Americans who are baited by neoliberal and neoconservative politicians and corporate oligarchs with racist and sexist and homophobic tropes to divide and conquer and keep them in their place. We do that when we, when we seek to educate them bit by bit and enlighten them about how they're being duped. We do that liberation theology when members of this congregation through the UU Legislative Ministry partner with other congregations and through local voluntary associations and put feet on our prayers for the environment, for criminal justice, for education, for gun violence, for health care, and when we put feet on our prayers for the queer kids and for the LGBTQ and gender identity rights. We do that liberation theology when we monitor polls and participate in you, you, the vote. I was monitoring a poll last November, in, in, in November 2020. My mother wanted to go monitor a poll, but she was on a walker and couldn't leave the, the rest home. A few weeks before she, her death, she died five days after the election. A few weeks before she, death, before she, she died, she got herself certified to register people to vote. And she went around that rest home on her walker and registered seven people and went back and, and voted their absentee ballots and signed them for them and sent them in. And she told me about it later on, about how she solved her problem, about how she was going to do something. There's something for all of us there to do liberation theology. One more thing, you can do liberation theology when you respond to the challenge of a UUGA delegate who yesterday, speaking in support of the pro-row action for immediate witness at our, at our uh, annual uh, uh, assembly that's going on now. She, she spoke, the, the action of immediate witness that she was speaking in support of was titled, We Do Not Consent, so you know what it's about, and it was passed overwhelmingly. She said, don't just vote for this action of immediate witness, but do at least two of the seven actions listed in it. She wants all you use to do at least two of the seven actions. You can go find this action of immediate witness online. Look up Actions of Immediate Witness 2002, UUGA, and you'll find it. We Do Not Consent is one of three that was passed. But I'll list them because she did too. She said the seven actions are, one, make a personal commitment to the work of supporting reproductive justice. Two, organize in small groups at the congregational level locally and nationally. Three, advocate through op-ed pieces, letters to the editor, letters and visits to legislators, and direct action. Four, witness by speaking publicly, rallying, and protesting. Five, build networks of support for abortion seekers. Hmm, sounds like a good opportunity for a brand new voluntary association, doesn't it? Six, educate others by training and sharing your personal experiences. And second, Fundraise for reproductive justice groups led by women of color like Sister Song and Sister Reach. I've got these if you want them. And, for, and advocate 
fundraise for abortion access groups like the National Network of Abortion Funds. These are all things that we can do. These are things we can do to do theology. We can't each do them all. There's not enough in the time of, time of day for that. That's why she asked for two out of seven from each of us. And one's a gimme. One is a decision <laughs> to do something else. But these are all actions that all of us can select from and do. But if there's one thing that I would hope that you can take from this service, it's this. Black folk theology is a manner of thinking. It's a framework that directs us back to what's important, to the action that is focused on the people who, in Howard Thurman's words, are disenfranchised. Let us not say, it's not my problem. I'm not a heroin addict in Massachusetts or a homeless person in West Virginia. Let us say instead, it is my problem because it's a third principle and a seventh principle thing. And these principles are what we want to live by. Principle three is about justice, among other things. And principle seven is about the interdependent web. That's justice. Just turn public, right? The interdependent web, in some sense, is principle three turned public. To neglect the spiritual dimensions of social justice ministry is to reduce social justice to materialistic terms. But to invest ourselves in the spirituality of social justice ministry is to transform social justice into something that is holy. Our purpose is to carry the message of public theology through our hands and our feet and not through our words to carry beloved community from here out into the world. May it be so.